Would you please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5? Matthew chapter 5. And we'll read together again the Beatitudes of our Lord Jesus. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In 1995, I was serving as the pastor of Hickory Ridge Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Very early one Sunday morning, before the sun had risen, I received a telephone call urging me to get to the church as soon as possible. When I pulled into the parking lot, I immediately was struck by a sea of red and blue flashing lights. There were fire trucks, there were police cruisers everywhere. Made my way through the crowd to the person who seemed to be in charge. And he explained to me that someone had broken into the church, they had wrecked equipment, they had spray painted walls, they had smashed windows. And then he said, whoever did this seems to have a particular animosity toward you, preacher. He, he led me through the office suite to my pastor's office that was still filled with smoke. And he explained that whoever had broken in had climbed by removing ceiling tiles over three heavy locked doors to get into my office and they had raked all of the papers off of my desk and I keep a cluttered desk. They piled them up in the middle of the floor and set them ablaze. A deputy sheriff had been on patrol and he drove by in God's good providence just as the fire was ignited and he saw the flames flickering through the window. He had called the fire department and they arrived in time to get the fire out before it spread. But then he said, another sister church was struck last night too and things didn't go nearly as well for them. I was familiar with this church. It was barely out of the way on my drive home, and so I decided to go by there and assess the damage. 
And to my shock, the sanctuary of that sister church had been burned completely to the ground. As I walked over those still steaming ashes, I thanked God on the one hand that no one was in any of those buildings and no one person had been harmed. But I was struck with this deep sense that the spiritual climate in our nation was changing right before our very eyes. And that it wouldn't be very popular for very long to serve the Lord Jesus or to name the name of Christ as our God, Savior, and King, that instead things would become very uncomfortable and sometimes very, very costly. The events of the last 30 years have only confirmed that that nagging sense was correct, haven't they? The days, it seems, are past in the United States in which biblical Christ Christianity enjoys the favor of the masses. Instead, our faith is increasingly portrayed as naive, as foolish, as bigoted, as a relic of the past that is best forgotten. And in this climate, we simply cannot assume that we will be able to follow Christ faithfully without cost. The political leader who voices his faith is going to be ridiculed. The journalist who shares her faith is going to be censored. The teacher who shares her faith is going to be reprimanded and possibly even fired. The university student who dares defend the faith, faith in class debate will finally, at the end of the semester, see their grade penalized. The high schooler who voices a commitment to Christ is going to be excluded. The social media personality who proclaims their faith in Christ is going to be canceled and so forth. If we seek to fulfill the Great Commission in this climate of ever-deepening darkness, we are going to suffer for our allegiance to the Lord Jesus. And in days like this, it is very encouraging to hear the final words of the Beatitudes in which the Lord Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. There are several questions that we should keep in mind as we look at these final verses of the Beatitudes. The first question is, can Jesus' disciples escape persecution? And the answer to that is a resounding no. Now, we already know this from the letters of the Apostle Paul. Paul tells us, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But the Lord Jesus implies that in the Beatitudes as well. Although most English versions of the Bible translate verse 10 
as if the participle is present tense, blessed are those who are being persecuted. The fact is, this is the only participle in all of the Beatitudes that's in the perfect tense. And the perfect tense speaks of a past event that has present ongoing results. The participle in verse 4 and 6 and 7 are all present tense. Jesus speaks of those who are mourning, present, verse 4. He speaks of those who are hungering and thirsting, verse 6. He speaks of those who are being merciful, verse 7. But there's a dramatic tense shift when he gets to verse 10. And he actually says, blessed are those who have already been persecuted. Even at this point in his ministry, Jesus and his followers have suffered persecution. A clear example of this is the experience of John the Baptist because he had stood for righteousness in protesting the adulterous marriage of Herod with Herodias, his brother's wife. John the Baptist had been imprisoned and ultimately he would be martyred by beheading. In other words, the persecution of Jesus' followers had already begun. And what Christ is warning here is that the past experience of persecution, which he and his disciples have faced, is something that is going to be continual and ongoing. He'll make that clear in verse 11. When he doesn't say, blessed are you if others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He said, blessed are you what? When? And what he's telling us is this is guaranteed. You will pay the price for your allegiance to me. Now, this shouldn't be surprising. In the great missionary discourse in Matthew chapter 10, when Christ gets to verse 16, he will compare the spiritual nature of his disciples to the spiritual nature of unbelievers, and he will describe us as sheep in the midst of wolves. And what happens when sheep are in the midst of wolves? They're going to be attacked. They're going to be ripped apart because that is the nature of the predatorial wolf. And what Christ is warning us is it is the very nature of those who are in rebellion to the authority of God to lash out against Christ's followers. He is letting us know this is what we signed up for. Another question we might ask is why do others persecute Jesus' disciples? And the Lord Jesus mentions two motives here. First of all, in verse 10, he describes us as those who have been persecuted for righteousness' sake. And the point that he is making is that the godly character of the Christian disciple is a silent indictment against those who choose a sinful lifestyle. Many, many Christians today are, are viewed as judgmental, but it's not because they wagged the finger 
at someone and said, naughty, naughty, shame on you, you shouldn't do this or that. We are viewed as judgmental even if we simply choose to live life a different way. Because the fact that we are living differently serves as a silent indictment that what others are doing is wrong. The very righteousness of the Christian life incites resentment. It inspires mistreatment and abuse. The Apostle Peter made this clear in 1 Peter chapter 3. He alludes to this eighth beatitude about the persecution that Jesus' followers will face. But then in chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, he offers a commentary on this beatitude. And this is what he says. He says, there has already been enough time spent in doing the will of pagans, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. In regard to this, they are surprised that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. And so they slander you. Do you hear what Peter is saying? He's saying that the lives of unbelievers are, are characterized by unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, lawless idolatry. And when you choose not to participate with them in that, it will be an offense to them. And they will slander you, they will insult you, they will persecute you. Jesus' followers strive for sexual purity. They insist on absolute honesty and integrity. They practice self-control. And so those who are sexually loose, who are dishonest, who are unrestrained, interpret the disciples' behavior as a condemnation of their own behavior, whether we verbally denounce their behavior or not. And so first of all, they try to pressure us to conform. Join with us. And if we refuse to conform, then they lash out. Then they insult, then they mock, then they ridicule the Christian's commitment and the Christian's character. Now, sometimes the righteous behavior of the Christian disciple will inspire respect. And the Lord Jesus is going to refer to that a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount when he says we're to let our light so shine before men that they see our good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven. And sometimes the righteous lives of Christian disciples will lead to God being glorified even by those who have not yet chosen to follow Christ. But just as often, the godly lives that we seek to live will invite persecution, the corruption of the human heart and its love for sin and its desire to justify our sinful behavior ensures that Jesus' disciples will be hated and they will be hurt if they're committed to godly living. But not only does the Lord Jesus say that his disciples will be persecuted for righteousness' sake, he says, verse 11, that you'll be persecuted on my account. That is, because of Jesus himself. 
and our faithfulness to him. The Lord Jesus was, after all, a controversial figure. And many loved him, but many more, it seems, in the first century world hated him. And those who chose to follow Christ incurred that same hatred. The Lord Jesus is persecuted by being accused of being in league with Beelzebul. Then he's called the very embodiment of Beelzebul. They attempt to stone him. And ultimately, they condemn him to death and execute him in the most brutal of ways. And the Lord Jesus will explain in Matthew 10, you will be hated by everyone because of my name. If they call the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Notice there, Christ says essentially the same thing he does here in the Beatitudes. Here he says, you'll be persecuted on my account, that is, because of Christ. Uh, in Matthew 10, he says, you'll be persecuted because of my name. But the point that he's making in both contexts, if we simply confess what Jesus' name claims about him, we are going to face persecution. What are Jesus's names? Well, the name Jesus, Yahweh saves, means that he is the one and only savior of sinners. But oh, do people get upset when they say that. Are you saying Christianity is the one and only way of salvation? Yes, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to God the Father but by me. And the response is, well, you bigot, who do you think you are? Another name that the Lord Jesus claimed was Son of Man. That name derived from Daniel chapter 7 that describes one like a human being who descends before the Ancient of Days on the clouds of heaven. That is, he is of heavenly origin. He's not just human, but divine. He is the God-man. And this is confirmed when people of every nation, tribe, and tongue serve him and the word serve literally means to worship the God man is worthy of the worship of all humanity people of every culture and race and language and this son of man is given glory and authority and dominion to rule over all the world forever and ever and ever. And this Son of Man is actually seated beside the Ancient of Days on the heavenly throne as his co-regent, as his co-equal, reigning over the cosmos with God the Father. And do you remember what happened during Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin when he confessed that he is the Son of Man and that the Son of Man is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high? They immediately sentenced him to death and began to orchestrate through the Roman authorities Jesus' crucifixion. Another name of the Lord Jesus is Lord 
Lord being the preferred translation of the Hebrew divine name, Yahweh or Jehovah. So when we call the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, we are acknowledging his deity. The fact that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who brought down the plagues on the Egyptians, who parted the waters of the Red Sea, it became a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, the God who created everything that exists. And we could keep on going with the names of the Lord Jesus. All of them bear offense to the unbelieving world. Now, it's possible to affirm a watered-down version of Christianity, which is not really Christianity at all, that just claims that Jesus is a great moral teacher or a religious philosopher and that kind of thing. And if you do that, you might be perfectly safe. But if you affirm the true claims of the Christian gospel, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the one and only Savior, that Jesus is the King who has the right to rule and reign over our lives, you will pay a price. Jesus says you'll be persecuted because of righteousness, but you'll also be persecuted because of your faith in me. Another question we might ask is, how will others persecute Jesus' disciples? And the Lord Jesus mentions three specific ways here. First of all, he says in verse 11 that they will revile you. That old word means to insult. They will disparage, they will mock, they will verbally shame. This is the same verb that appears later in Matthew to describe the insults that were hurled at the Lord Jesus by those who stood at the foot of the cross. And do you remember those insults? They mocked Jesus' power to save. He saved others. He can't save himself. They mocked his identity as the king of God's people. And they mocked his divine sonship, if you are the son of God, and so forth. Do do you see what they're mocking? They're mocking the essential claims of the Christian gospel that Jesus is God, he is Savior, and he is King. And ancient opponents of the Christian faith loved to ridicule believers, often by using clever little word plays. The early church, for example, insisted that the Lord Jesus was the son of the virgin, referring to the miraculous virginal conception of the Lord Jesus described in Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 2. A miraculous conception that ensures that Jesus is deity incarnate, God in human flesh. But opponents of Christianity like to mock the description of Jesus as the virgin, which in Greek is parthenos, by rearranging a few of the letters in that Greek word for virgin so that it became panthera. And the joke was, oh no, Jesus isn't the son miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin. 
No, he's the son of a panther. In other words, the product of bestiality. And these kinds of games are played all the time, even today. Case in point, if I were to take a poll this morning, I think just about everyone in this room would think that the word Christian fundamentalist was a very bad label to bear. Fundamentalist speaks of somebody, you know, who is stockpiling weapons and uh, about to seek the violent overthrow of the country and that kind of thing. Well, actually, Christians once proudly identified themselves as fundamentalists because all that meant was that they affirmed the fundamentals of the Christian faith like the deity of the Lord Jesus, the fact that his atoning death on the cross was the one and only way of salvation and so forth. A a Christian fundamentalist was simply someone who affirmed the fundamentals of Christian belief that the church has affirmed for the last 2,000 years. But our media has succeeded in taking that word and making it a bad word. Now, one of us in this room would want to be identified by the new definitions as a fundamentalist. That word is now synonymous with bigot, with idiot, with wacko or whatever. And we all see how Christians are portrayed in primetime television. Christ never mentioned except as the butt of some irreverent, blasphemous joke. And if a professing Christian pastor appears on the scene, watch out, because as the narrative unfolds, this guy who may have seemed so nice and so kind will ultimately turn out to be a terrible, terrible villain. And all of these are ways of insulting Christians changing the mindset of our society so that the Christian faith is negatively viewed. Christ says not only will they insult you, they will persecute you. The verb here, dioko, literally means to chase down. And the point that he's making is they're coming after you. They're going to chase you down, and when they catch you, They're going to violently abuse you or they'll haul you off to the authorities and turn you over for prosecution. This word is associated in the New Testament with violent persecution that leads to believers being beaten and tortured and imprisoned and often ultimately martyred. Now, 30 years ago, When we preached on a passage like this, it might have been a little bit awkward to apply because we would have to admit, well, Christians around the world are suffering violent persecution for their faith, but of course that kind of thing doesn't happen in the United States of America. That was 30 years ago. And things are very, very different now. Persecution of Christians around all the world has intensified. There were actually more martyrs for the Christian faith in the 20th century than all previous centuries combined. 
And it's not just something that's happening in Africa or Asia or the Middle East. It's now come to our own homeland. Even in the Bible Belt, if you boldly share your faith, even with great patience and compassion, you might well find yourself slapped. You might well find your life threatened. You might be aggressively attacked. And some of us in this room have experienced all that. Violent attacks on churches have dramatically increased in the last few years. From 1999 to 2021, there was an average of just 0.86% uh, 0.86 church shootings per year. In other words, on average, there was less than one church shooting per year over a period of several decades. But boy, did that change in 2022. There were four church shootings in just the first six months of the year. That was over four times the annual average from the preceding years and that's a comparison of just a six-month period to 12-month periods. I haven't been able to find the data on the second half of 2022, but if the twin trends we saw in the first six months continued, the number of shootings in the United States in 2022 would have been nine times more than the U.S. had previously experienced. First three months of this year, things looked very bad as well. 69 acts of hostility against churches in January, February, and March of 2023 triple the number in 2022, which is already the worst year on record. You see where the statistics are leading us. And of course, one of the worst uh, acts of hostility against churches was on March 27 of 2023 when the Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee was attacked and six people were killed, including three nine-year-olds at that Presbyterian school. You might say, well, that's happening in other parts of the United States. It would never happen here in good old North Carolina. Actually, North Carolina leads the United States in acts of hostility against churches. Here, here's my point. Persecution against the people of the Lord Jesus is intensifying and we're going to have to decide here and now whether we will follow Christ only when it's easy and convenient or whether we will continue to do so when it is costly. Christ says not only will they insult you, not only will they violently persecute you, he says they'll slander you. They'll say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Boy, did the first century Christians experience this. First century Christians, believe it or not, were accused of all kinds of heinous acts, falsely. In the Roman world, they were frequently accused of cannibalism, incest, atheism, and general hatred of humanity. 
Now, some Christian historians think that all of this was based on a confused understanding of actual church practices, that they were accused of cannibalism because of the Lord's Supper, in which our elements symbolize the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. They suspect that early Christians were accused of incest because Christian husbands and wives referred to one another as brother and sister. They had a spiritual union that was even stronger than the one designated in the marital covenant. The charge of atheism came from the fact that they didn't worship visible idol gods like the pagans of Greece and Rome did. They worshiped the almighty God who is invisible and dwells in unapproachable light that no man has seen nor can see. And general hatred of humanity was a charge leveled against them simply because Christians refused to play along and do the things that unbelievers wanted them to do like the sinful lifestyles that Peter described for us in 1 Peter chapter 4. But although some historians think that all of this was a harmless, confused understanding of actual church practices and beliefs, I don't think so. I think that the people who leveled these charges knew exactly what they were doing. And they took intentionally actual church practices and they spun them into slander because they thought there was just enough truth in the slander that their contemporaries might believe it and thus dismiss Christians as those guilty of cannibalism and incest and atheism and so forth. Now, these aren't confused interpretations of misunderstood church practices. They are deliberate distortions of the truth designed to defame believers. And that happens today, doesn't it? Christians take a stand for the sanctity of life and we're accused of being misogynist, woman haters. Well, excuse me, half of the lives we're trying to save are, guess what? Female. And yet that charge of misogyny seems to stick in our anti-Christian media and society at large. We're called gay haters because we oppose homosexual sin. It is not hateful to call people to repent and live according to the commandments of Scripture. That is loving. That is compassionate. That is merciful. But just as the ancients did, our very expressions of compassion have now been defined as hate. These are intentional distortions of our faith intended to demonize Christianity and force our conformity to the whims of our culture. Another question we might ask is, how should I respond to persecution? And Christ makes that clear in verse 12. He says, back into the corner and suck your thumb and feel really, really sorry for yourself. No. Rejoice and be glad. 
rejoice. And the word for rejoice speaks of an extreme joy, and as if that's not enough, the Lord Jesus intensifies it even more with the verb translated be glad here, which means to be so exuberantly joyful that you're caused to weep with joy, jump with joy, skip with joy, shout joyfully at the top of your lungs. And what's really interesting about these imperatives is the grammatical relationship indicates that we're not just to have this joy after the persecution has subsided and the stripes left by the lash have begun to heal and the nerves are no longer screaming in pain. No, we're actually to rejoice and be glad even as we are suffering that persecution, even as the lash of the whip rips open our flesh, even as our feet swell in the stocks and chains, even as nails are driven through our hands and feet, even in the face of martyrdom, we are to rejoice and be glad. And this is the way the New Testament saints did it, isn't it? Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are beaten with rods, and then they're locked in the torturous stocks, not just a means of restraint, but a means of torture. And how do they respond? with prayers and hymns of praise that ring out through that jail all night long until the earthquake comes and miraculously delivers them. We see that in Acts chapter 5. The apostles have been hauled before the Sanhedrin council and they have been flogged. And they were ordered not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released. And Dr. Luke tells us they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they were counted worthy to be dishonored on behalf of the name. Now, we know a lot about the floggings that were administered at the hands of the synagogues and the Sanhedrin. There's an entire tractate of the Mishnah devoted to prescribing how this torture was to be carried out. Very briefly, the person's garments were ripped off, their arms were bound around a stone pillar to make the flesh on their back and shoulders taut. Then they were whipped with a long lash that had multiple strands. You probably know from college physics class that the crack of a whip isn't caused by leather slapping leather. It's actually caused by the tip of the whip, breaking the sound barrier and creating a mini sonic boom. And when a lash strikes taut flesh at that speed, it can inflict enormous damage. First century Jewish law limited the synagogue floggings to 40 lashes minus one. And the reason for that is this torture was often fatal. 
And the Jewish law said that if the person administering it accidentally exceeded the 40 lashes by miscounting unintentionally, and that person died beneath the lash, they would be charged with manslaughter, and that person would have to spend the rest of their life in a city of refuge to avoid being killed by an avenger. So just to be on the safe side, rather than administering the full 40 blows with the multi-stranded whip, they limited it to 39. Law said there was to be an equal number of blows on the shoulders, on the lower back, and then the person would be flipped around and they would be flogged on the chest and stomach. The law said that once the torture had begun, it was not to be stopped for any reason unless a man lost control of both bodily functions or a female sufferer lost control of one bodily function because they recognized that meant death was imminent. They were going into shock that could be fatal and the purpose of the torture was not to kill. It was to hurt someone so badly that they wished they were dead. And it's after this kind of torture that Luke tells us they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin not weeping, not lamenting, not griping or complaining. They went out rejoicing because they were counted worthy to be dishonored on behalf of the name. With scores and scores of open wounds that are being rasped now by their rough woven garments, with their slightest movement, they rejoice for the honor of suffering for their Savior. When the Lord Jesus says, rejoice and be glad, he's not leaving any room for martyr complexes that say, woe is me and wallowing in self-pity whenever we suffer for the cause of Christ. This is our joyous privilege to suffer for the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus. And then Christ explains why we should celebrate the persecution that we experience. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Some translations say, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. But I like the more traditional rendering here because the possessive pronoun, which would normally appear at the end of the sentence, has been shifted out of its normal word order and placed at the head of the clause to put enormous emphasis on it. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is the point. And by that emphasis, Christ is saying the kingdom of heaven belongs to them and only them. And the point that he is making is that if we are not willing to suffer persecution for the cause of Christ, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven on judgment day. Christ will say this repeatedly. He'll say, if anyone wants to come after me, what has he got to do? Deny himself 
take up his cross and follow me. And taking up the cross means prepare for martyrdom. It means to be ready to shoulder a literal crossbeam of the cross, drag it to a literal place of execution, and be nailed there. Like Peter was nailed upside down on the cross for his devotion to the Lord Jesus. Christ is making it clear that his true followers are those who are willing to suffer as an expression of their faith in him. The kingdom of Christ belongs to righteous, believing sufferers and to them alone. Now, what is this kingdom of heaven? It's the reign of God in the person of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of Man, the one through whom the Father rules over people of every nation, tribe, and tongue for all eternity. And this kingdom was inaugurated in the first coming of the Lord Jesus, but it's going to be consummated. It's going to be brought in in its fullness at Jesus' second coming. And when the kingdom is consummated, it's going to bring enormous blessings to Jesus' followers that make all of our present suffering pale by comparison. Christ makes that clear when he says, great is your reward in heaven. The severity of the persecution we suffer now will be more than offset by the enormity of the reward that we enjoy for all eternity. Now, Christ doesn't define for us specifically what this reward entails. But because the promises and the Beatitudes have so often involved reversals, those who mourn are comforted, those who hunger will be filled and satisfied, so forth. Since the promises so often include reversals, I suspect that the reward is the very opposite of what the persecution entailed. In other words, the insult of human persecution will be replaced by divine commendation, well done, good and faithful servant. Human rejection and harassment will be replaced by divine acceptance and favor. Earthly tortures will be replaced by bliss and by joy that our human language cannot possibly describe. And what Christ is saying is that the heavenly reward for his faithful followers who endure suffering for his name will be so great that the persecution we endure here and now will seem like a trifling sacrifice. And Christ goes on to say that his disciples can be assured of this kind of heavenly reward for their suffering because their willingness to suffer for the cause of Christ puts them in the very good company of the Old Testament prophets, representatives of Israel's faithful and righteous remnant. 
Because the Jewish people had rejected and vehemently persecuted the Old Testament prophets again and again. And Christ is going to specify some of the ways that they tormented and even murdered the Old Testament prophets later in Matthew 21 and in Matthew 23. Christ is saying here is when people treat us like they treated the Old Testament prophets, they are unwittingly bestowing on us a prophet's honor. First century Jews recognized that the prophets would receive a special and enviable reward from God in all eternity. And what Christ is saying here is that now that you've become like the prophets in your willingness to suffer for God as they suffered, you can expect to share their reward. Now imagine that. On Judgment Day, Christ will evaluate our faith and our life, and as he examines our willingness to suffer for him as an expression of our devotion to him as God, Savior, and King, he will give us the reward of an Elijah. He will give us the reward of an Elisha. He will give us the reward of an Isaiah. He will give us the reward of a Jeremiah. And it's this that should prompt the great rejoicing and gladness that Christ spoke of when he said, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? In the Beatitudes, the Lord Jesus has detailed for us the process of salvation. It involved repentance from sin, grieving and mourning of the ways we have failed God and rebelled against God, submitting to God's authority, trusting Christ as our Savior, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being merciful toward others, having a transformed heart, seeking to reconcile with others that we've sinned against. And that may sound very different to some of the gospel presentations you've heard where it was explained, just pray this prayer and your salvation is guaranteed. Now, let's be clear about this. Salvation is a free gift from a gracious God. All of us have broken God's commands. We've sinned against him in more ways than we can count. We are not capable of living the kind of life that's necessary to pass God's judgment. But the Lord Jesus, the God-man, came into this world and lived the sinless, perfect life that we cannot live for ourselves, then went to the cross and was punished for our sins in our place so that we don't have to be punished. Because Christ died as the sacrifice for our sins, 
He offers us full forgiveness as a free gift. He offers to wipe every sin we have ever committed from the sight of the heavenly judge, to separate our sin as far from us as the east is from the west, to trade places with us. He was judged for our sinful lives so that we could be rewarded for his righteous life. That is a free gift. We don't work for it, earn it, or deserve it, and no amount of persecution we ever suffer could earn it or deserve it. And yet, if we truly receive a gift so precious and so great, we will be filled with gratitude for it. And we will want to live the rest of our lives for the glory of Jesus as an expression of our thanksgiving for this great gift. And if we realize the severity of the suffering he endured in our behalf, we will be more than willing to endure any persecution that faithfulness to him may entail. And if we're not willing to do that, then I would have to ask whether we ever genuinely repented, whether we ever truly believed. Because the true disciple of Jesus Christ is so enamored with the greatness of his sacrifice that we are willing to make any sacrifice for him and reconcile size that it is small in comparison to the one he offered for us. So I want to be honest with you. If you have not received forgiveness of your sin, I want you to accept Jesus as your God, Savior, and King right now. But I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that this Christian life will be a bed of roses, that the path will always be easy, that you will never suffer for your faith. You will. That's promise. But oh, how much better it is that we endure some momentary suffering in this life than to reject the Lord Jesus and suffer for all eternity because we refused his gracious gift. So despite the cost, I plead with you now, trust Christ Receive his free gift of salvation by faith in him as God, Savior, and King right now. And if that is your desire, when we sing in just a few moments, I'm going to ask you to come forward and tell me or one of our church leaders so that we can tell you what the next steps are in your new Christian life. I recognize that most of us in this room have been Christians for a long, long time But let's be honest, some of us have gone the way of the coward. And we have been silent when we should have spoken. And we have compromised when we should have stood firm. And my prayer for us is the same prayer that George Duffel wrote in the old hymn back in the 1800s when he said, Stand up 
Stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner. It must not suffer loss. Don't let the banner we wave fall on the ground and be trampled. Raise it. From victory unto victory, his army shall he lead till every foe is vanquished and Christ is Lord indeed. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, the trumpet call, obey. Forth to the mighty conflict in this his glorious day. We're marching forward, we're not retreating. Ye that are brave, now serve him against unnumbered foes. Let courage rise with danger and strength to strength oppose. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer. Where duty calls or danger, be never wanting there. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. The strife will not be long. This day the noise of battle, the next the victor song. To those who vanquish evil, a crown of life shall be. They with the King of glory shall reign eternally. Lord Jesus, give those who have repented of their sin and believed in the Lord Jesus this morning the courage to step forward now. And give those of us who call ourselves his disciples the courage to stand up. In Jesus' name, amen.